Why, hello and welcome. Welcome to the Peer Pressure Podcast. I am Diane, sometimes known as Diane Kamikaze, and I am your host. The reason why I do this podcast is because I like to say I am a champion of heavy music. I've always found my favorite songs since I was a young kid had riffs, hooks, were either metal, hardcore, hard rock, or punk, or something fairly aggressive in attitude and sound. And I am all about appreciating the people that keep that world going, whether they're musicians, webmasters, other podcasters, record label and festival owners. It's important to me to recognize what these people do in that realm of music. So... I am here to bring them to you in a different context, more than a Wikipedia entry or a press release, a little more personal and a lot more fun. I'm a rocker for life, and I hope these episodes do make a difference. Send me feedback at diane at wfmu.org. And my Facebook page is Diane Kamikaze Farris, rocker for life. Like my page there, and I will keep everybody updated on podcast episodes in that space. Thanks so much for listening and stay tuned. Hi folks. Today's episode is from October 23rd, 2014, when Pat Denizio of the Smithereens was my peer pressure guest. He of course passed away in December of 2017. And I edited this one a little bit differently. I left more conversation in about particular songs that are in Pat's playlist, even though you don't hear the songs on the podcast, you know, because he's gone and he goes into some really great detail and uh, his description of music and the parallels having to do maybe with his band, maybe not, are really great. And uh, even if you can't hear the actual songs on this episode, it does really sort of shine a light on how musical he was and how his entire life was focused on music, not just a guy with a pretty voice. He had amazing sensibilities in that way. If you want to hear the whole thing with the music, which of course I highly recommend, you can go to www.wfmu.org slash playlists slash shows slash 57808 and that's the direct link to that program and then you can see all of Pat's choices and Pat you're out there somewhere because there's that energy so thank you for your contribution as a musician and as a stellar human being. Pat Denizio, are you there, sir? Yes, I am. Well, hello. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm, I'm doing very well, thank you. Good. And uh, so we're in the middle of our singles going steady. Well, you know, uh, I think Record Store Day is coming up soon, and we're, we're putting out a single. Oh, you are? Yeah, it's a reissue of our, our first record, our, our first independent release, first thing that we ever put out which was released on Halloween of 1980. And it's a a complete replica of um, Girls About Town, which was a uh, four-song EP with a big hole Uh on our own label, D-Tone Records. And uh, our slogan was, and is, Look for the Bolt of Electricity, which our wonderful drummer, Mr. Dennis Dykin, came up with. And so it'll be a facsimile of the original with the original uh, sleeve reproduced. Uh, and the sleeve w- was in pink, but this time out, instead of black vinyl, it, w- it will be in pink vinyl. Oh, very nice. Yes, yeah, so the, um, everyone out there who still collects records as we do uh, should look forward to that, I, I would believe, because uh, I think the record's really getting uh, dif- rather difficult to come by. Even on eBay, it's pretty expensive because we only pressed up 1,500 copies and we gave them away. We would literally just put them on the, the tables of nightclubs that we played at in bars. Wow. And, uh, I mean, most people probably threw them away. Um, 
there's somebody smart out there who didn't. Well, I remember someone that we, we went to Bleaker Bob's, uh, and I'm not sure if he's still there or not, uh, the re- famous record store in New York. Yeah, and, no, he's uh, not. He closed down this past year, I think. Ah, uh, well, we gave him a copy. He was not the, the friendliest guy in the world. Oh, no. And, uh, you know, <laughs> he always had a, a Doberman picture between he and the clientele. Right, you know, that, yes. And then, anyway, it's funny because he he was a local legend, a fixture, and he did have great stuff. You know, I'd go in there and buy Rare Vinyl by the Stranglers and the Jam and, and bands that I really liked out of, out of England. And he had just about anything if you're willing to pay for it. You know, he did have it. And um, we gave him a copy of Girls of Bed Town for his approval to see if he would carry it because, you know, we had no distribution. Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody uh, saw us play at Kenny's Castaways on Bleecker Street and they walked into uh, Bleecker Bob's and said, do you, do you have any records by a group we just saw called the Smithereens? And he said, they suck. What do you want to buy their record for? <laughs> of course he said And he that. sold him the copy that we gave him. Oh. He, he sold them that record for like $20 or something. He overcharged them. Oh, how funny. Yeah, so. That's very, very typical, I'd have to say. I have really similar you know, experiences. One of my Bob. great regrets is that the single... Singles that we put out for Capital, while they did have the, uh, we, you know, when we signed with Capital, they were still doing this really uh, very unattractive purple modern label, oh. and we insisted that they go back to the label design that was used on all the Beatles, uh, Capital Records and Beach Boys and Sinatra Records that we grew up on. Oh, really? Yeah, it was a point of honor with us. But for some reason, the one thing we couldn't push through on the singles was that orange and, and yellow capital label. That, oh, right. Uh, the really, Beatles really records old one. Like, uh, uh-huh. Eight Days a Week and Strawberry Fields was on the, the... They insisted on the capital LP label design for the 45. Mm. You know, but it would have been nice to have that. And, you know, we that's why, that's why we did this. We just wanted to make records and play music and for us to wind up on Capitol Records for a decade or so the label of Sinatra and uh, the Beach Boys and the Beatles was a dream come true you know I have to pinch myself still I was going to ask you yeah. like how often did you pinch yourself how many times did you you know you're you're on par with you have the stature of all these recording artists well like, we we were sitting we were doing the Green Thoughts album um the first album had been done for Enigma Records. Mm-hmm. They were out of El Segundo, California, and uh, we felt very lucky to even have that record contract. And they signed us for something like two thousand dollars, and they committed a contractual breach, which enabled us to leave and go to Capital because Capital was distributing them. So the second album that we did, Green Thoughts, which was released in 1988, uh, we agreed that. It would be good for us to record at the famous or infamous Capitol Tower hmm. in Hollywood so we'd meet the staff of our new record label and they'd get to know us and know that we were serious about what we were doing and we'd involve them directly in the recording of of the record. So uh, we were recording in the same place where the Beach Boys had recorded some stuff and where Sinatra was a fixture. And, you know... We walked through the Capitol Echo Chamber, which was uh, underground, oh, under wow. the tower, and we went up on the roof. And you know that that strange round building, which is actually a lot smaller <clears throat> than than it appears, you know. Uh, and um, we were in the lounge there. There's a lounge off the main studio, and there's a very famous photograph uh, of Frank Sinatra leaving an all-night recording session shot from behind. He's walking down uh, the hall, and the hall is their building's a new wing of the Capitol Tower. He's got his uh, raincoat draped over his shoulders. It's a very famous shot. Mm-hmm. This famous fedora. <clears throat> and um, we were walking down those same hallways. You know, It, it was mind-blowing for us. Anyway, we're sitting in the lounge uh, looking at the artwork for Green Thoughts, which Dennis Dyke and our drummer and I had come up with, and the Capitol Art Department had put together, and it was color separations. And the, you know, the computer programs had not been invented yet, nor had the internet, right? Yes. You know, been made public. Nor were there cell phones. It was a different time. 
of course, and we're sitting in the lounge with the art director of Capitol Records, Tommy Steele, who whose uh, aunt Allison, oh wow, uh, not Allison, uh, oh. Allison Hayes, was best known for the lead role in the movie Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman. Oh, you're kidding! Yeah, so wow. there's all this. All these kids grew up with this stuff, and his stepfather was Gavin McLeod from Love Boat. Oh. <laughs> so you know, for us. But we're sitting there, we're looking at the artwork, and they got it right the first time, you know, and, and we were amazed. And all of a sudden, someone walks into this lounge. Now, this is a very famous lounge. It's where Frank Sinatra had romanced Ava Gardner. Ooh. You know, and that's that's a big part of music history because it was in the wake of the demise of his relationship with Ava that he recorded what is arguably the, the best pop vocal album ever, an album called in the wee small hours of the morning hmm. on Capitol, which I recommend to everyone who wants to uh, who wants to be schooled in arrangements by Nelson Riddle and great vocals, great heartfelt vocals that reflects the, the pain of uh, of love lost, the uh, wee small hours of the morning. So we're sitting in there knowing that that's where Frank would sit with Ava. And in walks Harry Belafonte. Oh, Wow. And Belafonte was on the label at the time. And um, we're just delighted to see him. And he realizes that he's walked in on a meeting. He goes, oh, you know how Belafonte speaks. He says, oh, I'm sorry, man. He, uh, I didn't mean to walk in on your meeting. I'll, I'll, I'll go. We said, no, 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 stay. You know, we, you know, we, we wanted to be with the, you know, Deo and, you know, all the great movies he did. And yeah, of course. And he comes in, and he's kind of sauntering around, and he goes, how are you doing? And I said, oh, we're doing, we're doing good, Mr. Belafonte. How about you? How are you doing? And, and he goes, wow. And he, he meanders over to the, the garbage pail, and there's like some papers in there and castaway stuff, and he kind of like rifles through the garbage pail as he's looking at us, and, and he's messing with the garbage, and he looks down, and he goes, he goes like everybody else, I'm just looking for a hit. Mm. You know what I mean? He's looking for a hit record. He's looking yeah. anywhere. Like it, it, the sense of humor, if right. you understand. He's looking in the garbage for a hit. Wonderful. Yeah. It's uh, So these are things that resonate in, in our minds and hearts forever, these experiences that we've had. You know, and for us, when we've met someone who uh, meant something to us, Culturally, musically, it's 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 a genuine moment, you know. And you take these things with you, and then you share them on the radio with nice people like yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it's just got to be startling and um, life affirming at the same time. Like 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 this is exciting, and this is exciting. Like uh. yeah, well, e- even things, little things like. For example, and and I don't. I'm, if we weren't doing the interview, this story would never come up. But uh, you know, I think that the people listening like to hear this stuff because everyone listening to you obviously loves music, and they won't have the story behind the songs or the, what was going on behind the scenes. And as fans, you know, us being fans, you know, never expecting to sell more than. 3,000 copies of an album and, and, and then getting gold records and platinum records and stuff, it, it's beyond the pale, you know, beyond anything we ever dreamed of, you know, and and we 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 appreciate it beyond, beyond words, but we, we were doing the Green Thoughts album and a, a note came for, uh, was delivered, like hand-delivered to us, and I read it aloud, I, was, I almost fell down, it was from Elton John. And said, I hear you guys are making a new album. He goes, good luck. I can't wait to, to hear it. Wow. You know, and this is at the beginning of the project, and he had his ear to the ground. And then I ran into him at the second Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, which I really had no business being at. I was sitting there. They put the Capitol staff at the wrong table. They put us about 10 feet away from the, the dais, the stage. Mm-hmm. And they put the executives in the back of the room. Oh. By mistake, so it was a lucky break. But to the right of me, at a round table, was Ringo Starr and George Harrison and Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne. Wow. And, you know, Bob Dylan, that whole crew, uh, to, to the right, I meant. To the left was Barry Gordy sitting with Brian Wilson and 
Elton John and and uh, Billy Joel, <laughs> and um, Lisa Robinson, the rock journalist, came over and said hi. We were friends, and and uh, I said I really want to say hi to Elton. I, he enjoys our music, and, and I said, but I'm afraid to go up to him. She said he's the nicest guy in the world, and she took me over to him, and and I, I finally met him and shook his hand. And I said, I'll send you a copy of the record. And you know what he said? He said, no. He says, I, I insist upon buying it. And, and it's true. He buys records because he supports artists. Well, and and that, was, that was a moment for me. Well, and he probably had the same situation at some point that you did. Yes. Before yes. anybody, before you were, I mean, discovered is such a weird word because you're there the whole time. And then you get into the 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 uh, the radar of somebody that can help you be successful. Yeah, and and it's 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 always strange, you know what I mean? I, I remember um, we had moved from Capitol to RCA, and um, we had we had toured for years at that point. You know, we were sort of a staple on the scene. We were. We'd been making records professionally for eight years, but had been around for about 15, almost 15 by that point. <clears throat> and I got a phone call out of the blue. And uh, this voice, very distinctive voice, says to me, I hear you're in town, you're making a new record at the Magic Shop. You need a guitar player? And it was Lou Reed. <laughs> and, he, and how do you say no to Lou Reed? So Jimmy and I usually do the leads. You know, Jimmy does most of the leads. Jimmy Babjack, our guitar player. But on certain songs, my style as a lead player may be more appropriate. So whatever the song demands. Uh, but we we let Lou play lead on two songs on on our album, A Date with the Smithereens, which came on RCA. So again. <clears throat> I'm demonstrating how how surreal life can be when you know you're together for for almost six years and all of a sudden you, you get a foot in the door of a career and you're lucky and a single in our case Blood and Roses which was never meant to be a single it was sequenced if we're speaking of vinyl as song number three on side two. Oh wow! Uh, you know, and and as you well know, um being a, a DJ and a, a fan and a lover of music, uh, if you buy a record, and back in the day, if you dropped the needle in the groove of song one, side one, if it was if the song was bad, you knew you got a bad album. Because you usually sequence what might be a single as song one, side one, or song one, side two. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Yeah, and Blood and Roses was song three, side two, so we, we never really did anything as per the the correct way to do it, I guess. Wow. It, um, I have a couple of questions from uh, listeners. Somebody wants to know if you did the boi- the voiceovers for Bally Fitness. Yeah. I, I, uh, someone had heard a radio interview that I did in Chicago, and uh, when I was married, I, I lived in Chicago for a while, and my daughter was born there. And uh, I got a phone call out of the blue from someone who worked for an advertising agency there. And they said, we heard your voice on the radio, and we think you'd you'd be very good for uh, the voiceover for uh, one of our clients. And and I said, well, what are you speaking of? I've never done this before. And they said, Bally's Health Clubs. And I said, well, I'll, I'll give it a shot. You know, and of course, you know, you're always interested in making a few extra dollars, and, and when children enter the equation, your life changes. <clears throat> so anyway, I went to the studio, and, and uh, it worked out. And they had the images of the TV commercial, which was a lot of very, uh, already very, very fit women working out with uh, equipment, Nautilus stuff, and in, in, in the gym, Bally's Health Clubs. And uh, I'll, I'll read you my most famous spot. And these things were in for about five years. If a better body came from a can or a box or a video, you'd already have one. So stop fooling yourself and get with the program that works. Bally's Presidents and First Ladies Health Clubs. Call one and call. I'm sorry. Call one eight hundred. Get fit today. 
You know what I mean? So yeah. you, you would hear that, and they'd add compression to the voice. And, you know, I, I, it would pop out of the screen. It just worked, you know, whatever the range of my voice was. Or the resonance seemed to work for the commercials. So, yeah, you do these things, you know. I mean, why not? Yeah, you do have a very strong, strong voice. <laughs> strong and smooth, aside well, from that coughing. It's it's not, you know, intentionally. You're just born with it, fortunately or not. Yeah. But they, they did have... Uh, for the men's commercials, where you saw the guys working out, they had they had uh, uh, a guy's voice who was more uh, like if a better body came from a you know like that kind of thing, yeah, you know, like to appeal to like guys that weren't out of shape. I guess it's it's kind of a, a generalization of what someone who's out of shape, you know. Some well, marketing is so funny. They try to imagine what people of a certain demographic want to hear or how they or, want to be yeah, spoken right, or, to. Or, you know, what sort of voice they relate to. Yeah, yeah, you which know, is funny. So, um, and then I uh, I helped build a company called XM Satellite Radio. Ah. I, I, I was one of the original program directors, DJs at XM. And oh, wow. We, I was there for about three or four years, and for a solid year, before we launched uh, in 2011, I think it was November. Or not 2011, 2001. And, um, you know, we I, I built a radio station called XM Unsigned, Channel 52, and I, I helped with, with uh, a very talented engineer who was also uh, a musician. We did all the imaging, all the commercials for the, the channel, and there was no advertising. And... We just played nothing but unsigned and emerging musical artists, and I was besieged with probably between 100 and 200 CDs uh, from all over the world. Every day I'd have to listen to these records, and uh, they did not follow uh, the rules at that point in terms of what I'd, I'd grown up with, uh, about your best track should be the opening track of the album. Oh, right. That, you know, you'd find the gem would be like the hidden track that wasn't listed, track 14. <laughs> and uh, we'd combine, uh, or we'd mix together pop pop music, power pop with blues, with uh, reggae-tinged music, with uh, dance-type stuff, much in the way that the AM radio stations that I grew up with, like WABC, 77 New York, you know, you'd hear you'd hear the, the Mersey Beat sound of uh, the Beatles and Jerry and the Pacemakers and Herman's Hermits, but you'd hear the Mamas and the Papas and the Beach Boys and, and the Birds stuff from the West Coast, and you'd hear bands from Detroit, you'd hear the, the, the Motown sound, or you'd hear Stax Vault, you'd hear Sam and Dave, you know, or you'd, you, you know, you'd hear stuff out of New Orleans or stuff out of Boston, and Every genre of music really seemed to work together, and it, you, you can combine everything, and it will work, and you'll find an audience as long as the songwriting is top-notch and, and you've got great melodies, and, and that's what we did, except it was all unsigned bands. And uh, a few of the bands actually got record deals, you know, and there was no commercials, and I'd have, uh, I'd have the bands come in and, and play live in the studio. And the problem is that we were located in Washington, D.C., and a lot of people, it's not the main stop. They just sort of pass through. Now I believe they, you know, they're they they're in D.C., but they're also, they merged years ago with uh, Sirius. So, you know, that's, New York is sort of the hub of everything, and, and all the bands pass through there. Yes. You know, so. mm -hmm. And I also had uh, a lot of college radio shows for many years that were syndicated, before the internet, things like the Maxwell House Coffee House Sessions and the uh, Kit Kat Acoustic Break, the uh, stuff where they'd, they'd press up like a thousand CDs and it would, they'd go out to maybe 700 college stations and uh, every week we'd have a different show. And we'd have uh, Marshall Crenshaw would be a guest and we'd have... Um, Roseanne Cash and Lucinda Williams and Richard Thompson, people like that. And I never used to like to read the bios of people. I, I like to improvise you know, and speak musician to musician. And those are floating around somewhere. They're actually pretty good. And on every show I do a duet, there's a, a 
pretty good duet uh, of me and Roseanne Cash and Mary Chapin Carpenter doing Daydream Believer with the Monkeys. And um, there's also a version of Marshall Crenshaw and myself doing Knowing Me, Knowing You by ABBA. ABBA. You know, so there's a lot of good stuff, and maybe someday we'll, we'll find a way to put it out. Yeah, it sounds like yeah. so, that's so something that's you could corral. That's my long-winded way of uh, letting you know the, that I, I love radio. I love what, what you do at the station, and it's very important. You know, I did an interview with Jonesy. Uh, I don't know if he's still in the air or not. Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols. Oh, wow. He had a show out at one yeah. of the major FM at stations K-R-O-Q, in Hollywood. KROQ, I think, yeah. And um, I walked in, and I was looking around for uh, for him, and uh, the woman who worked at the front desk guided me in his direction and was, uh, she was listening to radio, but it wasn't the radio, it wasn't the radio station that was in-house that she worked for. Oh, funny. Yeah, and this is sort of at the early days of, of, of the internet and, and, and streaming like we're doing now. Mm-hmm. And I said, what are you listening to? And she said, oh, she's, it's my favorite station. I said, I said, what is it? She was WFMU. Wow. And this was in, in California. Nice. It really opened my mind up to the possibility that people all around the world are listening to this. There's probably someone in Tokyo or Osaka or in Zurich or in, uh, in Germany you know, listening to what, what we're doing right now. It's really a privilege to have been on this station since, I've been here since 1985, um, and th- to see the progress, and when when we took on streaming also, I do remember years ago before when we were just FM, it's like, oh, you're on in the middle of the night, oh, nobody hears you, and now that's not really the case at all. There's archiving, there's streaming, I can send you a link to this show later, you can listen to it whenever you want to, you know, and... Uh, I think that just radio is is tremendous, and I don't think that we'll ever really lose radio. You know, I have to um, to thank you. I won a Green Thoughts contest on WDHA in New Jersey, and I won a lawnmower. No. Yes. Like, you mean a green lawn? I, yeah. I won. The, um, it was when that record came out. I won tickets to see you at the Brendan Byrne Arena, I had to, you had to send in photographs of your lawn, and I had the worst lawn in New Jersey. And you won. And I won, and I got a lawnmower, I got Chemlawn for a year, and I got tickets to the These show. are things that you know we find out about many years later, because we were on the road at that point, mm-hmm. living on a bus at, at least 300 days a year. You know, these, these tours would last 15 months, and you know once they opened the door a little bit, uh, in terms of us having a career, you know, after six years of having no success whatsoever, um, you know, we didn't gently walk in and kind of, you know, peek, peek through the, the, the door jam. We kicked the door down. So we were unaware of all this stuff because we were just so intent upon doing this because it's all we ever wanted to do. So when I hear these stories, it's very funny. Yeah. Yeah. About these radio contests. I remember hearing uh, uh, a girl from Capitol Records, one of the radio promo kids, got kicked out of a station in uh, California because um, she brought in like a sheep or a U, a E W E. Yes. And um, it was a female, and it was to promote the single A Girl Like You. <laughs> Girl like girl dash like you, and they said get out of here with that thing. Oh, that's very but fun. you know the, the the contests were always fun, but we usually didn't hear about the stuff till way after the fact. Uh, yeah, that's just a great visual that I have right now. I wish you could see it. <laughs> we didn't really even touch on what you're doing currently. One of the reasons why I contacted Pat is because um, the Smithereens are playing this weekend at the Chiller Theater Expo in Parsippany, which I've gone to since day one and um you're playing on saturday night so i thought it'd be a nice pairing to have you on right before yeah and then uh and then i see on your your website or on your facebook that tonight you're playing at the langosta lounge yeah in, uh, it's, it's a great park. little place and it's um right across the street from the stone pony in asbury park and it gives me the opportunity to do a show once a week and to to stay sharp you know to mm-hmm. use my voice and to tell the stories and it's a variation on um, 
a show that I did in Las Vegas at the Riviera Hotel for a year uh, back in, I guess, 2012, Mm -hmm. um, called Confessions of of a Rock Star. And and basically, it's it's about the story of my life but it could have been you know any anyone's life had they been standing on the right corner at the right time uh, about being an Italian American kid from New Jersey who saw Elvis Presley and King Creole in a movie theater in Wildwood New Jersey and sat through it four times and ate a hundred lollipops you know in 1959 <laughs> and demanded that my dad buy me a guitar the next day and uh, I was playing guitar in bands when I was six years old before the Beatles were even heard of and it's about, you know, my life as uh, a, a garbage man, you know, the, the son of a garbage man. Doing that for the most part, playing in the band, uh, the Smithereens, starting late when I was 24, but not getting a record deal till I was 31 years old. And how I woke up one morning and uh, instead of seeing Belinda Carlisle on MTV, I saw myself. Yeah, what is that like? Oh, I mean, it's, it's surreal. It's, you know, you, you, you cry. Hmm. You know, and and you get weak in the knees, and you know, you're elated, but you're astonished, and you're disbelieving all at once. And the thing is, you know, getting the record deal is it's a component in terms of whatever success you might achieve. The hard part is to make a good record. And then to have a hit from the record and to not compromise what you've done musically. <clears throat> and then um, to be able to follow it up and then follow it up. And it's, you know, it's a Herculean sort of effort to do this. And it's really draining if you take it seriously. But I think the fact that I was already 31 and not a 21-year-old kid with no life experience, I had been kicked around a lot at that point just... You know the way the what the way life does it to you. Hmm. That's what high school and, and school didn't prepare us for. I, I wish that they had uh, told us what life was really going to be like. You know what I mean? Right. Instead Everything of everything was abstract. You right. Know? So classes on subjects. Right. Yeah. You know uh, the what do you do in life? How do you balance a checkbook? What is it going to be like working with people who don't like you in the workplace? You know what I mean? Yeah. Back then, certainly. Uh, you had to work your way up. You know, you no one was going to hand you anything. And there was a certain... The older people got the jobs because they had the experience, you know. Nowadays, it's different. They're hiring younger people with less experience so they can pay them less. Yes. You know? mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's interesting. But um, so I do a variation. I tell stories. I, I, I tell the stories behind the songs. You know, I was honored. It was a privilege to do that show in Las Vegas with a band. Uh, I had a, a bass player and a drummer, and we did in the same theater where Dean Martin and Engelbert Humperdinck had entertained people for years, oh, where nice. I saw the Carpenters play in 1973. Wow. And I lived like a sort of reclusive Howard Hughes of rock and roll in, in, in the hotel for a year there, and just focused on, on doing the show every night. Uh, did not gamble, did not carouse or drink or any of that stuff uh, mm-hmm. because, you know, you're doing a 70-minute show and a lot of it was improvised in terms of the stories and, and in terms of uh, what what was the audience on a particular evening. Were they all tourists? Were they locals? You know, where, where did they come from? You know, were they older people? You know, were they from the World War II or Korean War generation? So... You know, I improvised the show at the Langosta based on uh, what the crowd is on any particular evening. And it's a eight-week or seven-week residency, so I'm there every Thursday uh, for the next five weeks, including tonight. And uh, it, it's, it's a lot of fun. I think people like to hear the stories, and, and uh, there's a lot of humor in it. Mm-hmm. Self-deprecating humor, really, and it's uh, a lot of it focuses around... Uh, my mom and my dad and you know what it was what it was like hearing i want to hold your hand by the beatles for the first time when it was played for the first time on the radio i, I just happened to hear it wow or seeing the beatles and ed sullivan or hearing about buddy holly or 
having uh, Black Sabbath come to my hometown of Scotch Plains in February of 1971. Really? Seeing them, you know, when I was 15 years old. They played in Scotch Plains? Yeah, they played at Union Catholic High School, and their first, this is right (laughs) during the Paranoid album and and the first album. Uh, Some of the lyrics are definitely, uh, shall we say, satanic in content, you know, and, and... they wore these big crosses that uh, I think Ozzy's father had made for them to protect them. Because <laughs> it was probably a gimmick, you know. And, and uh, they were fabulous. They blew my mind and it poured gasoline on the you know, fire of my ambition. Mm. But not only did uh, there was a concert series. And in fact, I went to a lecture at the uh, local library. A guy wrote a book called When Stars Were in Reach, the the quote from Bellboy from Quadrophenia. Oh, yeah. The Who song, because Mm -hmm. the Who played at Union Catholic High School in Scotch Plains, where we're speaking from here. Uh, They played there. It was the first concert that the school had as as a fundraiser. Wow. And they played in the basketball gym. um, Oh, that's amazing. uh, That was 1967. Chicago played there. The Association, The Love and Spoonful. Cream played in 1968, and my dad was a part-time police officer, and he was Ginger Baker's escort bodyguard. Really? Yeah, and uh, I mean, uh, that's one of the show's uh, stories I tell during the show. And um, Edgar Winter, you know, uh, I think I mentioned Chicago, mm-hmm. Sly and the Family Stone. They had, you know, we even had Rod Stewart in the faces at my high school, Scotch Plains Family. And they would play the Fillmore East in New York, and we're only 24 miles away, and they'd pick up some extra money. And bands routinely played high schools. The Velvet Underground played a high school, I think, in Jersey. was their first gig. Mm. I and, know. Yeah, the yeah. MC5, I know, played at Westfield, I think. Yeah, they sure yeah. did. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that was my first concert. We talk about that in my encounter with Ozzy. And what he said to me, and I, I can't repeat it on the air. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, so if anybody's around, you know, come down to Lingosta Lounge on, uh, in Asbury Park, right across the street from the Stone Pony. It, it's a good show. It's a lot of fun. It's live, and it's intimate, and it's it's old school. Mm-hmm. Do you have a band with you, or is it just No, you? it's just myself on the acoustic guitar and uh, mm-hmm. telling stories. And uh, for me, it's a challenge because to a, a great extent... People are on the go, and they they don't listen. They don't have the capacity to listen anymore. Everything we hear are, are sound bites. The news is little little bite bite sized bit of news that's not well researched. You know, people don't take the time to read in depth. In terms of the challenge for me, mm-hmm. is how do you know how do I get the audience to listen to a story, much like this interview uh, where. It's not one-liners or sound bites. It's 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 a story, you right. know. And it's like when you go fishing, for example, if you've ever been fishing, and I've only ever been fishing outside New Orleans, where it's, it's prehistoric, you know. Um, you cast your line out, and, and nothing is linear. It's not a, it's not a straight line. It's circuitous, you know. The the fish follows the bait around on the hook and, and it goes round and round in circles and a lot of times the audience is thinking, Well where what is this story? Where's he going? But when you when you deliver the the knockout punch, it's much more rewarding for everyone. And hopefully, you know, it, it takes you longer to get from point A to point B. But it's a lot more interesting and that's the challenge in this society. How do you get people to listen? Yeah, and they're they're tracking with you. Yeah, and, and, and you know, experiencing it with you. well, you you're taking them back in time to a different place. You're reminding them of where they were. You're talking about things like eight track tapes, and you know, you know, making out with your first girlfriend to an eight track tape because they were great. You could put an eight track tape in and press play, and then go to Europe for three months, and it would still be playing when you came back. You know, yes, yes. <laughs> these are the, the kind of funny stories that I tell. And it just pushes that button about things that people loved or experienced themselves, and and you know, but it, but it's current as well. We talk about a lot of things, so it, it's a good show. Well, and you get to you remind people of things that they've forgotten about, and although that your life is grounded in music, others people other people's may not. So you get to uh, to bring yeah. Them back. Well, life has a way of doing that to you, you know. And uh, I mean, for a while. Uh, we lost a lot of the audience because they got married and 
got mortgages and bought homes and had children and, and found themselves in the workforce and they were there but they were less active they, they didn't they wouldn't go to a show on a Tuesday night like they did when they were in college they simply couldn't right because they had to get up for work to support their family and uh, they were buying less records because they simply couldn't afford you know to buy what they did they had less disposable income because they had more responsibility but now these folks their kids are out of the house now and in some cases their their grandparents their kids have had kids so they're all back because they have what we have the reason why you're on the radio the reason why I'm doing what I do we still have that rock and roll heart of, of you know a 14 year old that that led us down this road and you never lose that you know maybe it gets buried but it's always there it's lurking there in the back of your mind and um, you know the stories and the performances help put people back you know I, I want people to come to smithereen shows when they come I want them to forget about everything, forget about their troubles and, and their cares and worries for the three hours that we do the show and walk out saying that was the best thing I've ever seen and they sound just as good as they sounded. You know, when I saw them in 1986, I had someone uh, at a recent show that we did somewhere, I think it was in St. Charles, Illinois, and he posted on my Facebook page, he goes, I hadn't seen you since 1988 when I was in college and you guys are better than you were uh, back then. And what we have to realize is that we have to be because the expectations are higher. So we got into your playlist a little bit. We just played Marshall Crenshaw and then the Beatles. Would you like to tell the listeners why you put those on your playlist? Well, uh, I was on to the Beatles like you know millions of other American kids and listeners worldwide and a lot of people who are tuning in right now. Um, but we, you know, we couldn't afford albums, you know. Usually a relative bought you a record. You, you could get a single now and then because they were like 59 cents. Yes. If you're lucky enough and you, you know, you went the first day the single was released, you got a picture sleeve with it. Because after the initial run, the, the picture sleeve was usually gone. You know, and it would just be in the uh, the, the the white sleeve, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or the generic sleeve. And, um, you know, the, the Beatles were extraordinary because compared to a lot of the other albums that you'd buy, you knew that from start to finish the Beatles albums were, were great, just like the Beach Boys albums were. You could depend on those two groups more than most of the other people. Usually it was, would be a, a single or two and the rest would be filler. Even some of the early Simon and Garfunkel albums are like that. Yeah. You know, and um, they're hard to listen to uh, unless you're just a, a hardcore fan. Um, I remember uh, being at home and, you know, mom would usually come in. The life was a little more regimented. And I was home from school and waiting waiting for my mom. And we usually eat dinner at 5 o'clock, 5.30. And she was late, you know, and this is great cause for alarm for a uh, a nine-year-old kid, you know, so a kid who had just turned nine in October of 1964, and this was, uh, I believe, December of 64, and she comes in and she brushes the snow off her coat, and she said, I got you something, and she had a, a, a record bag from two guys from Harrison, one of our legendary stores here in Jersey. Oh, yes. And um, she threw it at me, and it was an album called Beatles 65. And I didn't even know it was out. And it just had a great cover. And, you know, I, I, I sat down with joy in my heart, my nine-year-old heart, and, and played this album. And, and it was a revolution in, in my mind, you know, uh, because they had progressed leaps and bounds from the first few records i mean you know you know the beatles amazingly went from i mean how do you go from i want to hold your hand in 64 or december of 63 when it was originally released to um you know uh, a song like tomorrow never knows in 66 on the revolver album i mean two years you know to that uh but anyway there was something new happening with Beatles 65. You know, mm-hmm. the songs were more introspective and minor key and melancholy, yet they still had that drive, that urgency, and the John Lennon compositions especially. Songs like No Reply, I'm a Loser, and, of course, the song that you played, I'll Be Back. 
And I thought to myself at that time, and I was already entertaining, you know, the notion of, of be, you know, becoming a songwriter. I mean, certainly I was already in bands, you know, pre-Beatles, and while the Beatles were happening, even at age nine, we had a band. Um, and I said, that's what I want to sound like, you know. So that song is of great significance to me as a songwriter. It's got all the elements of everything that I ever wanted to do in it. Um now the the second track that you played, Marshall Crenshaw's "Blues Is King," is a great treasure uh, from Marshall. A song that uh, I think he probably did on the tour uh, in support of that album, which was called "Downtown." And we had been following his career, um, and we also would try to find a way to get on the bill with him at various concerts and open for him because we felt that we had compatible styles and. Uh, it was while I was writing most of the material for uh, our first full-length release, especially for you, the album that uh, established us with songs like Blood and Roses and Behind the Wall of Sleep, that I was listening heavily to a, a bunch of albums. And you're going to play tracks from those albums, and one of them was Downtown. I listened to it every day. And certainly some of that influence uh, from Marshall is on especially for you and, and that that song in particular uh it captures that melancholy sort of minor key ethereal feel that is also present in the present in the song like uh i'll be back by the beatles so you'll you'll hear a thread of musicality in terms of what my my personal tastes are but uh that that is significant blues is king by marshall crenshaw is significant uh, historically in terms of my progression as a songwriter and in terms of where it helped to uh, take the band the smithereens and i think we're going to uh, we're going to play a couple other songs that uh, i was listening to while i was writing the first album oh okay yeah well what, what are we doing next we're going to do um, husker do i think yes um i resisted husker do for a long time because they were the darlings of the college rock circuit like the replacements were and anything oh, yes. that anyone else liked I figured it couldn't be any good <laughs> and for some reason I stumbled upon the Zen Arcade album and, and I really loved it a lot of the material was very anthemic and it was sort of a slap in your face you know sonically the, these albums were done very quickly they probably did that album in two days mm-hmm. and it's a two record set and the drums are not particularly well recorded and it, it it sort of sounds like a mess but it's a band making <laughs> a statement you know and doing things their own way when i heard uh, the next song that, that you're going to play it's something i learned today it's the song i believe that starts off zen arcade that was another one of the albums oddly enough that i was listening to while i was writing the first smithereens album and um I don't know that it was a direct influence on the songwriting, but certainly in terms of my attitude uh, that we're going to do it our way or no way. So we heard some Suzanne Vega there. What the oh, you want to hear about uh, Beth Suzanne? One one of the nicest people that I know, and one of the most talented. Uh, I think the last time I saw her was was out in Las Vegas. When I was doing my show, I, I took some time to see her. She was on tour with. Duncan Sheik, and again, that was one of those records that I was listening to. It bears absolutely no musical relationship uh, to any of the Smithereens uh, material that came out at that time. But there was a cluster of, of albums, you know, the Husker Du record, the Crenshaw record, and Suzanne's debut album on the A&M label. And uh, we had a, an interesting history uh, she had been one of the roommates living in an apartment on First Street between First and Second Avenue before the neighborhood became gentrified back in the early 80s. And then I moved in with my girlfriend, Jan, at the time. And uh, there were these homemade Suzanne Vega posters all over the apartment, Xeroxed. And um, they would never stop talking about her, about how great she was and, you know, the, and all that. And Jan and I had problems about money all the time as as uh, you do encounter in relationships she got a phone call and it was Suzanne saying she needed uh, an assistant where she was working uh, and this was a computer typesetting company in uh, above Madison Square Garden at one Penn Plaza and so I became 
Suzanne's assistant for, I don't know, six months or a year. Oh, wow. I, I worked in an office with her. And uh, I remember uh, a, a lot of the work involved was me going out and making Xeroxes for her concerts, you know? Mm. <laughs> the, you know those handouts that you give. Yes. And uh, at one point, she handed me a Walkman, and she said, "These these are demos that I've done for A and M Records." And she said, "I think they're going to sign me." And you know, frankly, you know, I I didn't know much about her, and, and you know, I got jealous all of a sudden. I listened to him, and I, I had a closed mind, and I was thinking to myself, "Yeah, if she gets signed to A and M, I'm going to get signed to Warner Brothers next week." Mm. You know, and um, sure enough, you know. Um, she got signed, and you know, within six months of her six months of her signing, she was one of the biggest stars in the world. Six months after that, the Smithereens got signed. I don't like the word stars, but you know, it is it is what it is. We, we were very popular mm-hmm. and very well known. So, did you both keep that job? Uh, well, well, she left, but she I, I left before her because uh, apparently uh, the 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 boss there, our our boss, he had. Uh, quit music and uh he had played at cbgb's and uh, i think there was a rule there he didn't want her to hire any musicians you know uh. and um when he found out that i was a musician he made her fire me and i think she felt a little <laughs> guilty about it so she came and, and sang on our first album oh, that's uh, on a song called in a lonely place which is still a very re- requested song we even did a video for it i mean i i can never express how grateful I am to her personally for, you know, thinking enough of us to, you know, uh, to come and sing on that recording. And not only that, but to do the video. I mean, it was, she didn't have to do it, you know. Right. Very very big hearted, very nice, wonderful, and extremely talented woman, you know, and and a great person. It's funny, you know, but uh, it was only after working with her that I began to listen to her music and realize how really talented she she truly was uh behind the wall of sleep that's a black sabbath song well you know again it was my first <laughs> concert this is just an example we we have a song a very popular smithereen song that was a radio hit and continues yes. to be a concert favorite for us it's for uh, all you aspiring songwriters out there there is no copyright restriction on song titles the title behind the wall of sleep they they took it from the the horror writer from the 30s, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, who's very popular now, mm-hmm. he wrote a, a, a story called Beyond the Wall of Sleep. So they turned it into Behind the Wall of Sleep. And it's it's pretty much an instrumental, you know, I think there's some, some vocals in it. But it bears no relationship musically at all to um, our song, Behind the Wall of Sleep, which is a, a three-minute minor key a sort of dark pop song, mm-hmm. um, and I just wanted to show that um, whoever's a Smithereens fan listening, uh, that I took the title uh, "Behind the Wall of Sleep" from the first Black Sabbath album, uh, and they were a band whom I saw when I was 15 in my hometown of Scotch Plains, New Jersey, and then uh, I, I hitchhiked to Connecticut, to Staten Island, to Long Island, everywhere they played. That summer, you know, I snuck away, and uh, I must have seen him about a dozen times. Wow. And uh, there is an influence uh, back in the days when the record company was, uh, Capital was always looking for quotes regarding, uh, you know, how would you describe the sound of the band? You know, again, we're talking about sound bites, and what I came up with at the time was ACDC meets the Beatles, you know, and... Huh. and it's not really accurate for me. You know, ACDC was starting to garner or develop a certain cachet. You know, they were they were like hip in an unhip sort of way. You yes, know? yes. Among the intelligentsia of rock and roll, you know, they, all of a sudden it was hip to like them, and um, but it was very unhip to say uh, that it, it's Black Sabbath meets the Beatles. You know what I mean? But in a sense, for me, it was, because I never listened to ACDC until well after the fact, but I was certainly raised on albums like um, concurrently with the Beatles and, and the Birds and the Bo Brummels and all the great pop music and that we heard. But I, I loved the first four Black Sabbath albums, Black Sabbath, Paranoid, Master of Reality, and Volume 4, mm-hmm. and those aggressive guitar tones and minor key stuff and riffs like Blues Before and After, 
the riff to a girl like you uh songs like world we know from green thoughts they're, they're very much inspired by the kind of riffs the black sabbath wrote so anyway we've <laughs> illustrated you know a song that seemingly bears no relationship to what we do within the context of the smithereens yet does have some sort of influence you know on, on some level and certainly that's where I got the title from, but the title inspired lyrically something totally different. So what I'm saying is that to anyone who is creative on any level or anyone who wants to write songs or anyone who is interested in the process of how these things are achieved, that's one way to do it, you know, and there are many ways to, to go about it. I do hear more Sabbath in the smithereens for sure. Yeah, I would say so. You know, um, for me, not the the other guys would say there's more Who and Kinks, but there's a lot of that. Mm-hmm. It's all you know. It, it's the sum total of everything that we ever heard musically that really turned us on that we liked. And in my case, you know, it, it's I, I can't speak for the other guys. They they tend to be more pop oriented, you know. And and uh, um, I was you know hanging out at the Village Vanguard when I was a kid, when I was 17, 18, going every weekend to see people like Sonny Fortune, who later played on my first solo album, Sonny had played with Miles Davis. I'd go see um, Art Pepper, um, Tony Williams, who was supposed to play on my first album, uh, go see Pharoah Saunders. I liked sax players, you know, and I liked jazz, and I, I was into the Aaron Copeland music from the 20s and 30s, and a lot of soundtrack composers and different things and uh, I listened to a lot of it recently and you can hear that my my sense uh, of melody and the, the chords that I choose the kind of dissonant minor key stuff is a reflection of stuff that I listen to I mean I even listen to uh, you know Mahavishnu Orchestra stuff like that uh, while I was listening to the early Elvis Costello and Graham Parker albums and the damned and the clash and Devo and you know it all comes out in the wash. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you because you mentioned Sonny Fortune on your songs and sounds, your solo record. Yeah. That JJ um, Burnell plays on that. Yeah, JJ from the Stranglers. Yes. Well, I, I I had a gig. Uh, our manager Andy Schwartz, who was a player on the scene for many years managed a band called Beat Rodeo. He had a, a, a publication called The New York Rocker, mm. which is very important. And for some reason, Andy liked us, and, and uh, he was managing us. And uh, he, his full-time job was uh, at Epic Records, you know, part of Columbia Records, which was later bought by Sony. And uh, he worked in the publicity department there. And he knew that uh, myself, along with our original bass player, Mike, and, and the other guys in the band, but Mike and I more so, were major fans of a band called The Stranglers. Uh, the Stranglers had yes. as many top ten hits in the U.K. as The Beatles did, and something unknown here. They never really broke the market here. When I wrote the press release, they put out an album called Oral Sculpture, A-U-R-A-L, and it had a song called Skin Deep on it. It was a good album, and uh, I wrote the press release and I got paid $100 from uh, Epic Records, and I went to the uh, press release party where I had the great uh, record release party where I had the great pleasure of not only meeting the band, but uh, meeting Don Cornelius from Soul Train. Oh, wow. And I was shocked because Don Cornelius was slight of build, not particularly tall. At the time I was smoking, I, I, I bummed a cigarette from him, and I was shocked he was smoking Benson and Hedges. <laughs> Yeah, and he was a cool dude. You know, he was okay, and it was, you know, back then you you didn't have two nickels to rub together. Not that anyone has much more than that now, but we, uh, you know, anytime you you, could, you were invited to a party and there was free food, it was always like sushi was, you know, the the, the food of the day was new at the time. So anytime you could glom some free sushi, you were you were in heaven. I remember being invited to a party for Charday and her first oh. concert in America with the Smooth Operator album was at Radio City Musical and she sold it out and the party was at uh, the Time Cafe I think it was down down uh, where the oh. old Tower Records was on Lafayette Street in New York and it was just unlimited free sushi <laughs> and we were out of our minds and she, she walked in at the end of the party and she looked like this elegant porcelain doll hmm. And she took a look around, and she shrugged her shoulders, and she left. 
Wow. You know, it was interesting. Again, we're, we're telling tales out of school, as it were. But uh, I met J.J. Burnell, who was a major influence, certainly, on our, our former bass player, Mike. As the Stranglers were, we went to every tour they did, you know, for Feline, for... Uh, you know, not, I, I missed a lot of the early stuff. I saw the Black and White tour. We, we got ourselves backstage. It was at a place... Um, I think it was called Creation or something. It was in, in Jersey. In West Orange. I was there. Yeah, and, and it was the black and white show. And we were hanging mm-hmm. out near the garbage cans in the back of the nightclub, and uh, we were near the stage door. And we said, we want to meet the band. And, and we had no idea, but the person at the door said, oh, I know you guys. You're the Smithereens. You guys are great. Come on in. And it's like, holy cow, somebody knows who we are. We've only been together six months. And so we went mm-hmm. backstage, and we introduced ourselves, and... J.J. and Hugh Cornwall from the Stranglers gave us um, they gave us the beer, and they talked to us like equals. And it really, really helped us, you know, and, and it encouraged us. And I remember J.J. saying, how, uh, how long have you been together? And I said, uh, six months. He said, give it five years. It's going to take you five years to get a record deal and develop a sound. Wow. And he was right. I remember thinking at the time, no way. <laughs> you know, if we don't get a deal within a year, we're not going to wind up like everyone else in the village on Bleecker Street, never was or has been or whatever. You know, we were very, we were hardcore in that regard, you know. But sure enough, it took five years, and uh, I met him at that record release party, and we had, uh, I, I was there with uh, my girlfriend at the time, and, and uh, we I met him for drinks the next day, and I gave him, uh, they were staying at the Warwick Hotel where the Beatles would stay. Uh, near the CVS building, I guess, because they were on um, Epic. Yes, and, and, yes, uh, they were. And we had a couple beers, and I gave him a copy of our second independent release, Beauty and Sadness, and then uh, somehow we got a break, and you know we became uh, featured in the Melody Maker, which was you know if you got in the Melody Maker, you were you had you had it made in England, and it was a huge article on us, uh, four full pages, and. It, it, they called us Thornbirds, B-Y-R-D-S, like mm. Blood and Roses, Thorns, mm-hmm. and The Sound of the Birds, and The Beatles oh. and Bill Brummels. And I got a phone call from him, and he said, my little beatnik friend, he goes, you, you, you've got a career. <laughs> and we became good friends, and uh, he played on my first solo album. So uh, it was interesting, Lou Reed's drummer, Tony Thunder Smith, who had played with John Hammer, and Jeff Beck and Santana, and, and it was with Lou Reed at the time, and played with Lou for decades. Uh, he played on the album as well, so it was a hybrid. It's a punk rock bass player, a three-chord rock and roll pop guy like myself, and one of the world's great fusion drummers, and it, it seemed to work. I remember Don Dixon, our producer, was appalled at my choices, you know, saying this is never going to work, and you've never played together before. And the fact is, uh, before Tony had even checked into his hotel room, we had knocked out half the album. Wow. In the studio. And the wild card element was Sonny Fortune. Now, Sonny was a profound influence on me in the in the mid to late 70s. I would buy all of his records on the A&M Horizon label, and go to see him at the Village Vanguard in New York and I would sit in the front row and the the notes would just cascade out of out of his horn, out of his alto sax and just wash all over my body. I, I was blissed out, you know. Wow. And uh years later, after moving to the Atlantic record label, I think he had some hard times uh, in terms of keeping a record deal. But the audience had moved on a bit and uh he's putting out these obscure, you know, one shot records for, you know, uh, very fly-by-night German labels, things like that, things that didn't, that weren't distributed properly. So we were in a, a position at, um, when we were at Capitol Records, EMI, where I called Bruce Lundville, who's a, a music industry legend in the jazz field, and ran Blue Note, probably still runs it. Uh, and Blue Note was the premier jazz label in the world, and I said, Bruce, I, I want to produce a group an artist, and he, and he said, Pat, you want to produce a jazz record? And I said, yeah. I said, and, and, and he said, who? And I said, Sonny Fortune, because I wanted to help my hero. You know what I mean? I was in a position to help out. Right. And uh, he goes, wow, I love Sonny. He goes, but my plate's really full. He said, you know what? Let's do it. Wow. 
and so you know out of the blue you know uh, you know we I, I managed to find Sonny turned out that uh, we, we had a connection somewhere through an attorney and uh, uh, I got a phone call from Sonny my hero whom, whom I had never met but who, who meant so much to me and you know helped me develop as a musician on some level again you know his music bearing no relationship to the, the pop sound of the smithereens and uh he said, uh, man, who are you? Because <laughs> you, you, you got me a record deal with Blue Note? Who would, you know, I mean, yeah. it's suspicious. You know, I've been kicked around a bit. And so uh, I, I was able to get Sonny a, a deal with Blue Note, and he put out three albums, and he repaid the favor by playing uh, on my album, on my first solo album. And he did one gig. We, we toured with that band, and he played one gig at the Mercury Lounge in New York. Wow. But I digress. You you did ask the question. I did ask the question, and thank you for a very thorough answer. Chiller Theater Expo and the array of stars is just like, astounding. We're involved with that because we were in, the Smithereens were in Time Cop with Jean-Claude Van Damme. We did a video for him. Oh, wow. We, yeah, we were in uh, Class of Newcomb High, which we made in the early 80s. Oh, how funny. Yeah. I, um, I was a teenage zombie. Oh, cool. Yeah, so we, we have a, a kind of history with B-movies and, and horror films and sci-fi stuff. Mm. So uh, it's something that's near and dear to our heart. But we, uh, you know, a lot of the cast from the, the, the great cult film, The Warriors, is going to be there. Yes. Yeah, yes. so we're, we're going to have fun. And we'll be at Chiller all day signing stuff, and then we'll be performing that night, and this is this Saturday. Perfect. All yeah. right. So we'll, we'll see you there. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And that concludes another podcast episode. Thanks for tuning in. More on the way. I am Diane Kamikaze. Check my Twitter and Instagram. Handle is one word, Diane Kamikaze. And Kamikaze ends with an E. On Facebook, you can find me as Diane Kamikaze Farris, Rocker for Life. My regular WFMU program right now airs Thursdays, noon to 3 p.m., for an expanded version with lots of music, wisecracks, ticket giveaways, music news, and other fun stuff, check me there. The full link to my index of WFMU programs, including podcasts and regular radio shows, is wfmu.org slash playlists slash DK. That's a capital D and a capital K. I'm going to be working on encore presentations, and I've got years of old interviews and podcasts. So if there is something that you'd like to see reposted, whether you missed it or whether you just loved it and want to hear it again, drop me a line at diane at wfmu.org and request that. Be sure to subscribe to the show if you like it. Please rate it and review it. And there you go, WFMU, peer pressure. Thank you. See you next time.